And I'm going to read for us verses 19 through 26, Acts chapter 11. This is the evangelist Luke who is writing. He says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, trying to get away from the persecution, but telling the message, the word, only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It's a pivotal moment in the history of the church. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So what is a Christian? Am I one? And how would I know that? A few years ago, Dave Knapp and I went to a restaurant in town to meet two Muslim men who I had met earlier in the week, and I had invited them to talk further about their faith. So we set up this time. I invited Dave to come, and we sat down across from a table at each other at the Garden Restaurant. And the first thing they did was assure us that they weren't trying to convert us to Islam. I, on the other hand, told them I would love to see them become followers of Jesus. talking about his convictions, one of those Muslim guys, the one who did most of the speaking, explained that a person born in the United States is automatically a Christian, unless he was born to parents who are Jewish or Muslim or from some other faith tradition. He said the factory default position in America is set to Christian, just like the factory default position in Saudi Arabia, for example, is set to Muslim. Well, I told him that is not the way that we see it. And not the way the Bible teaches it. That no one is a Christian by default. No matter the family or nation into which they're born. I told him that people become Christians by choice. Both by God's and theirs. And not by accident of birth. Well, that was hard for him to grasp. He said, if you're born in a Muslim country to Muslim parents, you're a Muslim. That's all there is to it. You may be a good Muslim. Or you may be a bad Muslim, but you're a Muslim. And as far as he was concerned, if you're born in a Christian country to Christian parents, you're a Christian. You may be a bad Christian, you may be a good Christian, but you are a Christian. Well, even as I was disagreeing with him, I knew that lots of Americans hold exactly the same opinion. They assume that they're Christians because they were born in a so-called Christian country. When they fill out the census form or hospital admittance forms, they check the box marked Christian. Even though they never go to church, they never give money as an act of worship or service, they never read the Bible, 
Most of them can't even tell you what the four Gospels are, and yet they take for granted that they're Christians. Right now, there is a significant gap between the number of people in America who call themselves Christians and the number who participate in corporate worship. But you know what? That's changing. If the trend continues, you can expect to see that gap narrow and finally disappear altogether. But it's not narrowing because more people are going to church. It's narrowing because fewer people are calling themselves Christian. Back in 1941, 91% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. In 2008, that number dropped to 76%. The fastest growing religious category in the last census was neither Christian nor Muslim. It was nuns. That is, people who marked none for religious affiliation. That number is skyrocketing. The drop in the number of people calling themselves Christians has a lot of religious folks freaking out. They think the sky's falling, that this is an entirely negative thing. But there is an upside. And the upside is this. People who have never been Christian in any biblically meaningful sense are beginning to feel comfortable in dropping the label. And that at least brings some clarity to the situation. At least they know they're not Christians. It's a step in the right direction. But it's hard to talk about this in ways that are easily understood, and that for two reasons. The first is this. The word Christian carries 2,000 years of baggage. It has political, cultural, and historical associations that are almost impossible to separate from it. Our church supported a missionary to an Islamic people group who wouldn't even identify himself as Christian. And it wasn't that he was ashamed of Christ. It was that he was ashamed of other Christians. The people to whom he brought the good news, they knew of Christians living on their islands. They were the people who drank too much and slept around. So that's the first problem. The way the word Christian has been used historically has muddied the water and it's deviated sharply from what the early Christians would have had in mind if they used the word. And that brings us to the second, even bigger problem. The early Christians didn't use the word very much. The Apostle Paul, who wrote more New Testament books than anyone else, never used the word at all in writing, in our writings. It's only occurs three times in the entire New Testament. And then there's this fact the early Jesus followers didn't choose that word to describe themselves. It was coined by their adversaries who used it pejoratively. It was an insult. People ridiculed the Jesus group by calling them Christianas, the Christians. For my part, we could stop using the word Christian altogether. I usually avoid it in regular conversation if I can. It means too many things to too many people. Disciple would be a better word and was the, the description that biblical writers most often used. But people today have no clue what that means. Disciple? Or you could use believer. That's another good, strong biblical word. But it's hardly going to do in today's world when true believers might believe in aliens or in small government or in Bigfoot. And sometimes I think... Never mind, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I just had this moment of clarity. <laughs> Don't say that. 
I wish I would have remembered that when I said something about country music once, and, and I didn't think that way. I should have. The word follower. I'm trying to get us back to where I should have been. The word follower is another word that could be used. It's common in, in biblical descriptions of the people of Jesus. But whatever term we use, disciple, believer, follower, Christian, what do we mean by it? And more importantly, what does the Bible mean by it? Am I one? According to biblical criteria. In our passage, the new disciples slash believers slash followers slash Christians are described as people who believed and turned to the Lord. People who believed what? Not in aliens. What did they believe in? What was the content of their faith? Now, we're going to get to that in a moment, but let me suggest some things they didn't believe in. They didn't believe in religion. That is important to grasp. If you mark the box Christian on the census and are trusting that to save you, trusting Christianity to save you or any other religion, you're going to be awfully disappointed. It's not a church or a doctrinal statement or a ritual that saves not even a good church or or a right doctrine or a divinely ordained ritual. It is God alone who saves Neither did those early Christians believe in a particular theory of the atonement. There have been something like seven serious theories of how the death of Christ atones for sin over the years, three of which have been widely held in the church. The one that comes closest to what most evangelicals believe today wasn't even proposed until the 11th century and didn't come into contemporary, its contemporary form until the 1600s. It was unknown for at least half the Christian era. If believing in Jesus means believing in that particular theory of the atonement, there were no Christians for a thousand years. See, it's not so much that we have faith in his atoning death as we have faith in an atoning savior. It's not that we trust his death for us so much as as we trust the one who died for us. That's an important distinction. Nor were these people believing in belief. Over the years, I have frequently heard church people say, oh, I'm trusting my faith. And I always want to say, and sometimes I do, well, stop it. Stop trusting your faith. Start trusting God. Trusting your faith is like breathing your breath. It gets stale and you can't live on it for very long. Biblical faith, the kind the apostles and evangelists knew, is not faith in faith. It's faith in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when the Bible uses the words believe in or believed in, in puts them together it is almost always either god or jesus that is the object of belief believe in god believe in jesus jesus once said you believe in god believe in me he said whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me only but in the one who sent me Christians trust in the God revealed through Jesus. They don't just have confidence in a teaching about Jesus, however true that teaching might be. They have confidence in Jesus himself and in his Father God who sent him. In the early days of the church, 
So a little, little background. In the early days of the church, there was a suspicion and even a hatred of Christians, especially in Israel, but outside of Israel as the faith went outside of its borders. It, think of, it's not exactly like this, but it's not entirely unlike. Think of the suspicion and hatred among Sunni Muslims towards Shia Muslims and vice versa. Something like that. First century governments not only condoned the persecution of Christians, they positively encouraged it. When the first wave of persecution that swept through the church, when it reached its peak with the arrest and execution of the martyr Stephen, the ferocity of anti-Christian sentiment sent believers fleeing out of Judah, Judea in a mass exodus. It's later referred to as the dispersion. That persecution drove the believers in Jesus out of Judea, but it couldn't drive them into silence. Wherever they landed, in Phoenicia, in Cyprus, in Antioch, they kept telling people about God, that he was active in the world, that he was especially active in sending the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, whom his own people killed, but whom God had raised back to life. Their fear of persecution was real, but so was their excitement about Jesus. They were excited because they understood that his coming meant that God's kingdom was at hand. The ancient promises were being fulfilled and God was setting right what had gone so badly wrong. They understood that his dying meant that our sins could be forgiven. They understood that his resurrection meant that the end times had arrived. And God was putting his plan to restore all things into effect. They were excited because they believed that God was on the scene reconciling the world to himself through Christ, and they got to be a part of that. They did not make the mistake that we so often make. We take one piece of this great story, that Jesus died for our sins, and we treat it as if it were the whole story. When we do that, we're in danger of reconstructing Jesus' death in a way that leaves out a lot of biblical data in a way that usually turns out to be all about me. We even change the hour to my. Jesus died for my sins. Well, of course he did. But my forgiveness isn't the only thing going on in Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me illustrate. There are a number of famous musical works that are, for whatever reason, incomplete. The last movement of the Bruckner Ninth, the second movement of the Brandenburg Number no. 3, which as it stands, is, is, that whole movement is one measure. Just two chords. The Mozart Requiem, one of Puccini's operas. In many cases, later musicians come along and they try their hands at completing these works. So, for example, the second movement of the Brandenburg, most musical scholars believe that Bach intended people to fill in a cadenza or something at that place. And so many conductors have taken various other Bach pieces and they've put them in that place. Uh, there have even been a few self-confident and, I think, arrogant musicians who think they know what Bach intended to write. And so they've written it themselves. But imagine that someone now discovers a score for that second movement in some old, old German church written in Bach's own hand. I suspect it would turn out to be very different from what later composers thought it would be. When we remove Jesus' death and resurrection from their context, 
and the story of the creating, covenant-keeping God, it almost is certain that we will reconstruct it according to our own preferences. Yes, Jesus' death does mean that our sins can be forgiven, and we have a place in the new heaven and earth after we die. But it also means that God is at work right now, that he's keeping his promises, that he's fixing what went wrong, that his kingdom is open to people who believe, that Jesus is Lord. That's what excited those early believers. A literal translation of the end of verse 21 might go like this. Large, a large number believing turned to the Lord. In other words, the words believing and turned are in the closest possible relationship. In the original language, there is not a conjunction between them. It's believing they turned. When they started believing Jesus and in God his Father, it turned them around. It turned them from heading the wrong way, from submitting to the wrong master, and from arriving at the wrong destination. That's what believing in Jesus will do to a person. It'll turn him around, or more precisely, it will turn him to God. When the gospel first came to, uh, to Macedonia, to the city of Thessalonica, Paul says that people turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. When Jesus first called Saul of Tarsus to be his messenger, he told him, I am sending you, and here's your job description, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. St. Peter writes, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have turned to your shepherd and overseer of your souls. So hear this. If you sort of drifted into Christianity and to church, maybe you were born in church, but you've never turned to God. If God isn't important to you in everyday life, something's wrong. People who believe in Jesus turn to God. They enter into God's purposes and God enters into their lives. A godless Christian, and by that I mean a Christian for whom God doesn't seem to have any role in his life, is a contradiction in terms. So ask yourself, is God important to me in daily life? And your life say, oh, sure he is. Well, in what way? How would anyone else know that God is important to me? Because you see, there will be evidence of God's grace in a believer's life. When in our text, the Jerusalem church sent the good man Barnabas to check out what was happening in Antioch, this is verse 23, he saw the evidence of God's grace, or literally he saw the grace of God. He went up to Antioch and he saw the grace of God. What did he see? I think he saw several things. One of them was an interest in Jesus. These people were all about Jesus. When at a later date, the synagogue goers in Pisidian Antioch couldn't get enough of Paul and Barnabas' teaching, and they followed them right out of the synagogue, those two good men urged them to remain in the grace of God. They saw evidence of the grace of God in the fact that these Jewish people couldn't get enough of Jesus. That's an evidence that a person is a true believer. Another evidence of grace is, surprisingly, work. We're so used to hearing grace contrasted with works. It's not works, it's grace. So it might surprise us that Paul, the great apostle of grace, saw work as an evidence of grace. 
He says that God's grace was not without effect in his life since he worked harder than anyone else. And yet he says, it wasn't I doing the work. It was God's grace that was with me. Grace works. I'm sure when Barnabas went to Antioch, he saw that. The true grace of God also helps people persevere. Perseverance in faith is evidence of God's grace. So Peter writes of the true grace of God in which we stand. It holds us up. It keeps us firm. Another evidence, I think, that of God's grace that Barnabas saw in Antioch was a change in how people behaved. The grace of God that brings salvation, this is Titus 2, teaches people to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. People have really encountered God, whether you call them Christians or disciples or followers or believers, are learning. It's not automatic. It doesn't all happen at once, but they're learning new habits that are changing their lives and honoring God. I think Barnabas saw that. Something else in our text. And I've sometimes seen this in people's lives. Sometimes I've noticed its absence. Followers of Jesus are characterized by a hunger to learn, to know more, to apply what they learn to life. Our text says that Barnabas went and found his friend Saul, brought him back to Antioch, and together they taught the church there for an entire year. A desire to learn is characteristic of people who belong to Christ. And one last thing. These genuine believers slash disciples slash followers slash Christians were generous. When they heard about the famine that would threaten the already beleaguered Christians, the Jewish Christians who were living in Judea, this mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles said, we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to give. And so to ease the difficulty of their fellow Jesus followers, they gave money. A growing generosity is a normal part of a Christian's life. See, as he grows more secure in, in the love of God and his confidence that God will care for him, he becomes freer in caring for other people. Now, the question we started with was, am I a Christian? Perhaps it'd be more helpful to ask, am I a follower? Or even more helpful to ask, am I following Jesus today? If you are, you should see at least some of these evidences of grace in your life. God, who he is and what he's done, what he's doing, will be important to you. You'll think about it. You'll think about him. You'll care. If you're a Christian slash disciple slash follower slash believer, belief in Jesus should motivate you to action. It should help you persevere. It'll probably cause some things in your life to fall away, things that you're no longer doing or even thinking about because grace has taught you to say no to selfishness and yes to God. You should be growing in your compassion for others and your generosity towards them. But, and this is important, you are not a Christian because you do all these things. You do all these things because you're a Christian. See the difference? And do you see where this is leading? The thing that makes a person a Christian is not a religion, but a life. The Christian life is the life of Christ lived again in you and me. It's a life that bears certain characteristics, just as it did in Jesus. It perseveres, it's tough, it's generous, it's hungry to learn, though not necessarily academic learning. 
it increasingly says no to sin and yes to God. That's what this life is like. We don't grow gradually into this life, though this life must and will grow in us. We receive it. We say yes to God. We choose to follow his son. We confess that he's Lord. And when we do these things, his life flourishes in us. And his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So have you received this life? Have you said yes to God? Let's pray. God, many of us have said yes. And today we say yes once again. We've made our choice and we affirm it. We, we are your people. Whatever happens. And we are not your people because we've earned it, but because you've made us your people through Jesus. And we thank you for that. And Lord, as we come to the communion table, to a covenant meal, we once again say, yes, we are yours. And we say it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing, and those of you who are helping with communion, if you would come up to the front.